Thank you. <clears throat> My name is B, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Thank you for asking me to come and speak. Uh, wow. Uh, so I told you, Nessa, I'm, I'm probably going to run out of time. Uh, it's been a long time since I've spoken for 50 minutes, but, you know, I'm trusting God. Uh, I have a sobriety date, which is August 23rd, 1992. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I have sponsees who have sponsees. Uh, I have a home group. I have service positions. Uh, I am active in my own recovery. Uh, I'm Icelandic, living in Spain. So those are the basic facts about my me. So uh, I started drinking when I was nine. And uh, I come from an alcoholic household, and uh, that does not make me an alcoholic. I was bullied in school, and that does not make me an alcoholic. Uh, you know, there were so many things in my life that were difficult and and hard, and none of them make me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is that I have the physical allergy, and I have the mental obsession, and I have the spiritual malady. Those are the things that make me an alcoholic. Uh, so, yeah, I started drinking when I was nine, because in my household, drinking was a daily occurrence. And... Uh, <clears throat> My mom was a resident alcoholic, and my dad was a sick enabler in the household. So he ran a brewery in the basement of our house to keep my mom plied with alcohol. Uh, so it was basically a natural progression for me to start drinking at an early age. And I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I was uh, a year ahead in school. Uh, so I didn't have any friends that were my age. Uh, I was always socially awkward. I played the violin, which was really not cool back in those days. Uh, my family is named really weird names, so that was not cool. So, you know, it, it, it was a pileup of things. I was in class with all the beauty queens in my school. They were all in one class, and that was my class. And I was always the little ugly girl in the corner that played violin and had, an, had a strange name, right? So I never, ever felt comfortable in my own skin. And because I was bullied in school, I would have an anxiety knot in my stomach when I was leaving the house in the morning. And... Uh, then when it was time to go home from school, another knot would appear in my stomach because I didn't know what was going to meet me when I came home. My mom was a career woman and she was absolutely fantastic. She was an amazing woman, but she was a very sick alcoholic and she was a violent alcoholic. I had a brother who was six years older than me and I have a brother who's two years younger than me. Uh, my mom has... Uh, I think it's nine grandkids and uh, a couple of gra great grandkids, and I'm still the only girl. And my mom used me as a punching bag. So 
that's what I grew up with. And that, that, that became my normal, right? Drinking alcohol, taking beatings, and, you know, just never fitting in. But alcohol changed all that for me. As soon as alcohol is in my body, I am six feet tall and I've got blonde hair and blue eyes and I'm just as beautiful as all the beauty queens around me. And I am not socially awkward. I, I fit in everywhere and I have all the chances in the world, right? So why wouldn't I do a lot of drinking, right? I mean, drinking was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Until it wasn't, but we'll get to that. So by the time I'm probably 11, I'm drinking almost every weekend. By the time I'm 12, I'm running away from home. I'm, I'm, I'm lost. Uh, and this is way before the internet so or cell phones. So the cops would be advertising for me in, in the papers and in the radio on a regular basis. And my dad has told me in later years that there were many weekends when he was cruising the nightclubs in my hometown looking for me. And, you know, when I look back on it, I, I had never a single thought about the pain that I was causing my parents. It was all about me. But when I look back, I can see the pain and suffering I instilled upon my parents. Well, apparently, my, my parents didn't get the memo that I, <clears throat> I'm the bad company that other people seek. So they kept trying these different ways of getting me out of the bad company that I was keeping. So I was sent to Denmark to live, and uh, <clears throat> it didn't change a lot. And then I was sent out to the east coast of Iceland to, to live and babysit for one of my cousins that didn't change anything i was still drinking i was still smoking i was still you know being an insufferable selfish and self-centered girl and uh, finally they ended up sending me to a boarding school and i wish that would have changed you know something it didn't i was pretty soon just picking up uh, suitable company. I was drinking almost every day for the nine months that I spent at that boarding school. I was getting severely anorexic. Uh, I was basically dying. And when I went to that boarding school, I had at least three, if not four, suicide attempts under my belt. And in that boarding school, I had yet another suicide attempt, and I am super grateful that it didn't work out. And I am super grateful that I didn't ruin my liver and my kidneys because I ate 300 tablets of aspirin. And that is, that is something that is fatal, and I have no idea how I survived it. I just remember you know, three days of, of hearing absolutely nothing because it felt like I was underwater. 
And yeah, I'm so grateful that that I didn't manage to kill myself. But this is how I was feeling. I was suffering on a daily basis. I was always suffering. I was always in pain. I was always miserable. And I I always felt like an alien everywhere I went. I never had any friends. I don't to this day I don't have any childhood friends. I was incapable of making friends. Um, <clears throat> I came home from that boarding school and uh, I'm supposed to start college and uh, I'm just basically too busy drinking, doing outside issues by this point. And uh, my life is completely unmanageable. Absolutely. From start to finish. Uh, I couldn't hold a job. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that I hadn't been able to hold a job because in my thinking, my alcoholic thinking, I never lost a job because I was left, you know, minutes or, or days before they fired me. So I was never fired, right? Nothing wrong here, nothing happening. Just, you know, keep going, right? Uh, <clears throat> by this time, I'm... I'm I'm just really, really struggling. I'm trying to control my drinking. And uh, we all know the 18 methods in the big book. I tried all of them and then some and none of them worked. The result is always the same. I take a drink because it's a good idea. Because the weather is nice. Because the weather is miserable. Because it's Monday. Because it's Saturday. Because, you know, somebody was mean to me or somebody was nice to me or, you know, whatever. <laughs> By this time, I'm realizing that I do have a problem. So I, I start trying the geographical cure. I'm moving from place to place. I'm switching boyfriends. I'm switching jobs. I'm switching cars, you know, running from one end of the country to another. And... The result is always the same. Uh, the summer I was 19, I was working at a fancy resort hotel in a really expensive tourist place back home. And uh, I'm drinking every day. I'm using outside issues. And I'm in a relationship that is really... Not a good idea, but, you know, to an alcoholic, it was a really good idea. And I woke up to the terrible fact that I was pregnant. And I knew, because I'm, I'm, I'm fairly intelligent, and I knew what drinking and doing all these outside issues could do to a baby. So I quit cold turkey and I waited with my life in my hands for that 20-week sonar uh, appointment. And when the sonar technician told me that my baby was healthy, that it had a heart that was beating and 10 fingers and 10 toes and, you know, everything was okay. What does an alcoholic like me do? Well, let me tell you. I tell myself that it's okay 
to drink red wine because red wine is really, really good for pregnant women, right? So what do I do? I drink red wine when you guys see. But when nobody sees, when nobody's looking, I'm drinking whatever I can get my hands on. So I drank through that pregnancy. And uh, I am super, super grateful that my older son was born healthy. He was tiny, but he was healthy. <clears throat> and, you know, in my alcoholic thinking, I'm thinking, okay, so here's the deal. Now I'm a mom, right? Just turned 20. Uh, I turned 20 uh, a few weeks after he was born. And uh, I loved him with every single fiber of my being. And I remember ever since I was a baby, almost, promising myself that I would never, ever put my kids through what my mom put me through. Never, ever. And that was the last principle that I broke. I had that baby and he was beautiful and he was perfect. And uh, I couldn't wait to start drinking again. So three weeks after I had him, I was drinking again. Because I cannot stay stopped. It is as simple as that. I cannot stay stopped. And I dragged that little boy through hell and back with me for almost three years. So in January of 1992, my younger brother was living with me because his wife had thrown him out because he was drinking after rehab. Uh, and he went out to get some money. And obviously it wasn't... Uh, an honest way of getting money. He decided to rob an older man that ran a small grocery store that we had known since we were children. And he got arrested and thrown into jail. And he sobered up in jail. And I was the victim, obviously. To my thinking, in my selfish, self-centered way, I'm the victim. Because he left me all alone. It's all about me, always. I am always going to be the center point of everything. You know, at this point, you know, I, I really resented going to funerals because I wasn't the cat, wasn't in the casket. So I wasn't the focal point of the funeral. See, this is my way of thinking when I'm drinking. About three weeks after my brother was arrested, I surrendered with quotation marks I want to say because looking back it wasn't a full surrender but I realized that I needed help so I went into detox and uh, four weeks of rehab and I came out still thinking that I'm not an alcoholic I just used too much of the outside issues I couldn't be honest with myself or anybody else just like it says in how it works. I was incapable of being honest. Absolutely incapable. So what happened was that I went to meetings in, instead of pouring a drink. So I went to, I don't know, 20, 25 meetings a week. I was all over the place. 
and I always said, my name is B and I'm an alcoholic. And the only thing that was true coming out of my mouth was my name is B. Everything else was dishonest. Everything else was a lie. And my life was completely un unmanageable. I was just, you know, going down the drain in untreated alcoholism. I'm not treating my alcoholism with alcohol. I'm not treating it with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> and six months to the day from the day I walked into that detox center, August 22nd, 1992, I sold myself the idea that I could have a beer. Because beer is not alcohol. Because nobody's died from drinking a beer. Right? Does this sound familiar? See, and I was at a concert, and I said to myself, well, nobody's going to know if you have one beer. And beer has never been my thing. You know, for most of my drinking career, beer was illegal in Iceland. So I, I never was a big beer drinker. Uh, <clears throat> but I was at a concert, and <laughs> half of the room were people from AA that I had been in meetings with. And I'm... I'm trying to drink on the sly without my AA buddy seeing me drinking. How sad is that, right? And I ordered that beer. And uh, within an hour, that one beer had turned into, I don't know how many, 15, 20 beers. And I had my hands full of outside issues in a filthy, in a filthy bathroom in a filthy bar. And the only thing I wanted to do was die. And that last drunk lasted for 12 hours. And I went places that I didn't want to go. I, I was in search of things that I didn't want to search for with people that I didn't want to associate with. And I had my moment of clarity. It was a sort of a Scarface moment. So if you know, you know, uh, I realized this is not what I want. This is not the life that I want. And I managed to scrape together some coins to be able to pay the bus fare to my apartment. And once I got into my apartment, I called my brother and cried on the phone, please help me. I went out and drank last night. And his reaction was, yeah, yeah, keep telling that joke. And I'm like, I'm not kidding. And I went to an AA meeting that night. And I promised myself that I would never, ever forget how I felt sitting in that room. And to this day, I still remember how I felt. And that feeling is not going to keep me sober. That feeling is not going to keep me sane. That feeling is not going to keep me from, from picking up a drink. I thought it would, but, it, it, you know, I've learned since that that's not enough. Uh, <clears throat> I went back to rehab for four weeks and I went into a halfway house where I had to live with 22 other women, two kids and a dog. And it, it, it was mayhem. Let me just put it that way. It was absolute mayhem. And I learned so, so much about myself. I learned so much about how to behave and how to treat other people. And, uh, 
how to deal with some of my character defects and my issues. And here I am, right? 24 years of age. I know absolutely nothing. And I thought that life was going to be unicorns and rainbows from here on out, right? And it hasn't. It definitely hasn't. Uh, <clears throat> I've been all over the world since. Uh, the AA that I came into in Iceland, we often refer to it as, as the Ice Age of AA in Iceland. Because uh, at this point, most of us had a big book and it was still in the plastic. Nobody had practical experience with reading the big book, let alone following the suggestions in the big book. Uh, the 12 steps were a poem that were re was read, you know, around the half point of the meeting and nobody really understood them. And 12 traditions were something that was absolutely boring. And we would always pick like two or three to read at the end of the meeting. That was the program that I came into. So I was sober on fellowship for a long time. But uh, in 1998, uh, great events happened in, in Iceland because a couple of crazy newcomers had been to meetings in California and they decided to bring Joe and Charlie and their big book study to Iceland. And they did. And it absolutely revolutionized AA in Iceland. And I am super grateful for that. However, revolutions tend to be bloody and they tend to be difficult. And that revolution in Iceland was one such revolution. It split AA in Iceland into two factions. You know, the crazy people that we call the Taliban's. And then there were the old timers like me with six years under their belt, telling everybody that we do not need this craziness in our life. We're trying to stay sober and just keep this away from me, please. And, and you know, <laughs> eventually, you know, the Taliban's took over. And I'm, I'm sort of getting squeezed out of AA because, you know, less and less meetings are to my liking, because I am in my own self-will, and I want what I want, when I want it, and I want it now, and this is not to my liking, so I don't want to take part. Uh, <clears throat> and around the, the turn of the century, I'm going to one meeting a year, which was my home group, and that was the anniversary meeting of AA on Good Friday, because I, uh, AA in Iceland was established on Good Friday in 1954. And uh, <clears throat> then the Taliban ruined the anniversary meeting for me as well. And I'm like, I'm running out of places to go. And I'm getting sicker and sicker. I'm, I'm, I'm sicker and sicker in untreated alcoholism. My life is completely unmanageable. I have two kids at this time. And, you know, things are just absolutely going crazy. Uh, and again, great events happened in my life in, in January of 2007. And pretty shortly after, I finally surrendered with both hands. And I walked into an AA meeting and I said, can you please help me? I'm dying of alcoholism. I've been dry for 15 years and I have no recovery whatsoever. 
And somebody said, yes, I'll help you. And they read the big book with me. And they took me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, one by one, in the order that they come in the big book. And my life began to change. In that last rehab, I had uh, gotten the tools to establish a connection with a higher power of my understanding. And that higher power has been with me throughout. That higher power has taken me through, through some seriously, seriously dark events and days in my life. And for, you know, at times I've been sober for five minutes at a time and two minutes at a time because an hour was too much. <clears throat> but I finally experienced a spiritual experience in 2007 when I went through the work without reservations, without having opinions, without thinking, yes, but, or yes, I know, but. Because in my mind, I am always a special snowflake. I'm this very, very rare orchid that needs such special conditions to grow and thrive, right? And what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me is that I'm a garden variety daisy that grows on the side of the road, and I do not need any special conditions to grow and thrive. I can grow and thrive in any conditions whatsoever, as long as I keep fit spiritually, as long as I keep my contact with my higher power as long as I keep grounded in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Since then, life has taken me so many, so many places, and, and I've, I've, I've had so many magnificent adventures in, in AA. So if you're new here, welcome home. Fasten your seatbelt, because this is going to be the ride of your life. And I still haven't come across an alcoholic that has worked the 12 steps honestly and without reservation and has at some point said, you know what, this is not working for me. You can have it back. I still haven't come across that alcoholic. You may have, I haven't. And that has been my experience. I do not want to change this. I do not want to go back. Uh, <clears throat> In 2012, I was given the opportunity to move to Ohio in the U.S., just outside of Akron, and it absolutely blew my mind. Up to that point, nobody could have said that I was a lady in AA. Nobody. I was a potty mouth, and I was absolutely undisciplined. But I have a, I had a great passion for this program and still have. But I got to play with people. And this is the year that I was celebrating my 20th anniversary. And I got to play with people that had 30 and 40 and 50 years of sobriety. And I got to be the newcomer in the group with 20 years. And it was mind-blowingly awesome. Uh, I was going to conferences 
all over and hearing these amazing speakers, and I was being taught how to behave in AA. So if you're new, please pay attention to what your sponsor is doing, what your friends are doing in AA, and ask God if that's the, the behavior that you want to see in others in AA. Uh, <clears throat> I learned so much in that uh, year I lived in Ohio. It was it was absolutely mind-blowing. And I, I came home to Iceland with a suitcase full of tools, and uh, <clears throat> I started implementing these tools into my life and into my surroundings in Iceland. And great events came to be. The fellowship that I crave will grow around me. No matter where I am in the world, the fellowship I crave will grow around me as long as I'm doing the next right thing. I got to uh, put on a women's conference in Iceland for three years, which was mind-blowing, and it was absolutely amazing to see 125 women in one room with, you know, hundreds of years of sobriety in one room. And it was absolutely beautiful to see the love and the and the passion and the and the kindness and the care that one AA can show to another. Up to that point, the women's society in AA in Iceland had been rather difficult, to say the least. But I got to see changes in the women's society in AA as a result. And it was absolutely magnificent. And I am so grateful to have been the channel for that change. I do not take credit because it was not my change to implement. I was just the channel that brought the tools. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many women I've sponsored through the years. I have four sponsees at the moment that are actively working the program. I have a couple of sponsees back home that are settled in their sobriety and they still call me just to, you know, keep on track. And uh, <clears throat> my life is beautiful. My life is absolutely beautiful. And it's not because of me. It's because I have a higher power that is has worked at doing for me what I cannot do for myself at any point. In uh, early 2018, Christmas 2017, uh, early 2018, great events again uh, came to pass in my life, and I moved to Spain. And... Uh, <clears throat> For the longest time, I was grieving. I was I was absolutely heartbroken and in a thousand pieces, and I, I couldn't see the day that I would put myself back together again. And see, this is where God steps into my life again and again and again. He steps in, and what happens? We had a pandemic, and AA moved to this platform. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by the people that I love in AA, both in Iceland and elsewhere in the world. I got to reconnect with some of my dearest friends. 
uh, <clears throat> and this time I was so thirsty for good AA that I was absolutely dying of thirst. <clears throat> and I was absolutely uncontrollable on Zoom in the beginning of the pandemic. I was all over the world and I was sometimes in two and three meetings at once because I just could not get enough. And it has, you know, since it, it's come into balance. I only do Zoom meetings. Uh, and there are several reasons for that. And one of them is physical. I'm losing my hearing. And uh, I, I do not do well in, in physical meetings, hearing-wise. So I do Zoom. And uh, <clears throat> it has absolutely, again, revolutionized my recovery. Absolutely. I've gotten to take some of the tools that I've been given through the through the years. And uh, I've been given the chance to pass these tools along to people. And I was running workshops and uh, running meetings. And uh, <clears throat> two years ago, I, I found myself in burnout. I was just absolutely exhausted. And I took... Uh, uh, <clears throat> what do you guys call it? A hiatus uh, from AA. I didn't stop my program. I was still, you know, praying and I was still meditating, still talking to my sponsor. I was doing all the things that I need to do to be okay, except going to meetings. But then the last year, last year I started going to meetings again. And I, again, found the fellowship that I crave. And it has been absolutely a beautiful experience for me. Uh, today I'm doing service on three meetings. And that is perfect. I am not the center of attention, which is absolutely perfect for me. Because I, I, I'm an introvert. You know, every day that I don't need to open my front door is a really good day in my books, right? I don't really like people, except when they're in AA. So I go to meetings pretty much every day, sometimes two and three. But I try to keep things in balance, you know, because I've learned the hard way that I cannot sit in these rooms and give and give and give. I have to also receive. I have to refill my cup. So I'm keeping my life in balance. I've uh, <clears throat> I've been blessed with having a mental illness alongside my alcoholism, and that has been a challenge that uh, has been difficult at times, but always rewarding. Uh, I've I've done so many many, many things in my lifetime since I got sober. And uh, that passage out of the big book on page 124 is absolutely one of my favorite passages out of the big book. Uh, <clears throat> because that has been my experience. I get to use my dark past and my darkest days for somebody else's help for somebody else's benefit. Uh, 
I don't usually talk about these things in AA meetings because they're sort of an outside issue. Uh, but if you want to know more, I'll put my number in the chat afterwards and uh, you can definitely call me or text me and, and ask. Let's just say that uh, I had my younger son with a sexual offender and uh, it was dark and it was difficult and it was horrible and I survived even though I thought I wouldn't and uh, <clears throat> I've gotten to use that experience for somebody else's help. And I've, I've clung to the thought that, you know, when I'm going through something, that no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how dark it is, or, or you know, th there is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. I know deep in my heart with every fiber of my being, there are no coincidences in God's house. That there is a purpose with everything that I go through. And I will not see the purpose while I'm going through it. But at some point, I will be shown the purpose. And this has come true so, so many times in my life, you guys. It, it, it's just mind-boggling, really. And all I had to do to get all this was to say, please, can you help me? I'm dying. Can you help me? I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. I fell in love with the people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys loved me until I could love myself. And when I look back over my life, I can see how that happened. I couldn't see it when it was happening. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes I get the question, would you change anything? Right? And I can say, as I sit here with you guys on a Saturday night, no, I would not. Because I am always the sum of my experiences. Everything that I've gone through has made me the person that I am today. And I absolutely love myself today. I am one of God's kids, and I get to play with other God's kids, right? Uh, <clears throat> the 12-step helped me to get to that point. The 12 traditions helped me to get along with you guys. You know, they're the, the play rules of the, of the playground in the sandbox. And I, and I get to play with you in the sandbox without throwing sand in your face or, or, or pushing you out of the sandbox or, you know, how, how grateful should I be? How grateful should I be? I've had the privilege of walking alongside and behind some some magnificent spiritual giants in this program that have taught me so much about what it is to be a good AA. Uh, and, you know, how, how I treat myself when I come across myself out there in the streets. How do I treat myself when I come across myself? When I'm dealing with people that could have been me there, but for the grace of God, right? And I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. I, my mind is constantly blown over the fact that I can show up 
and uh, treat myself as I meet myself out there with kindness, love, consideration, and tolerance. Because these are not qualities that are ingrained into my DNA. But I've gotten to practice them in the in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and just not just in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in all of my affairs as it says in all of my affairs I get to practice these principles on a daily basis uh, five minutes thank you uh, I live in a small village in, in Spain right. I don't know three to five thousand people in the village, and it's small, and it's quaint, and it's beautiful. And uh, I have friends in the village that are normal. You know, they're muggles. Uh, <clears throat> and because I am an introvert, and because I tend to isolate myself, uh, my best friend in the village has, has taken it upon herself to uh, socialize me. So I have... Friday nights, that I call amateur nights because my muggle friends uh, all drink occasionally. And uh, to me, it just feels humorous to, to sit there with them and, and you know, and they've, they've had one or two drinks and they're woozy and they're like, no, I'm, I better get some water now. I'm like, yeah, this is amateur night, you guys. This is absolute amateur night. And I love it. And I do it every single week because I know it's good for me. Some some Fridays I really don't want to go. Yesterday I was having a really bad day. Uh, my mom died a year ago and uh, I'm dealing with the aftermath of that, uh, dealing with her estate being in probate and it's difficult because alcoholism is a family disease and everybody plays in my family whether they want to or not. And uh, most of my family is now in active alcoholism. But I did go out last night because I know it's good for me. And, I, you know, in my years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I've, I've come to learn so many things. But one of them is this. Here is what I want, right? And here is what's good for me. Opposite ends of the spectrum. And I've, I've gotten to get those two points together for the most part. So now I rather want what's good for me than not. But there are days when I when I don't want to do what I'm being told to do. Uh, thankfully, because I am just a human. Uh, but I did have a good time last night, and I came home rather early, and I logged into a meeting, and it was beautiful. See, this is my life, uh, because. <clears throat> of my mental illness, I'm on disability. So I get to be an AA woman 24-7. And it's been absolutely a privilege. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor to walk alongside the women that I have sponsored and to walk alongside the fellow alcoholics that I've gotten to know and love in these rooms. You guys are my family. You guys have kept me going through whatever 
And my experience is that as the longer I stay sober, the road gets, gets narrower, right? I don't have as much tolerance for pain. I don't have as much tolerance for, you know, all falling out of my program. But at the same time, the horizons get wider and the, and my life just keeps getting more and more beautiful. I'm going to end on this. Um, <clears throat> my life sometimes looks like the TARDIS in Doctor Who or the tent in Harry Potter. It is really small and it doesn't look like much. It looks tiny from the outside. But from the inside, it is absolutely magnificent and it's huge and it is so so beautiful and i would not change a single thing even if i could my two sons are both struggling with active alcoholism and the only thing i can do is pray for them because i cannot be the messenger for them but i can be the messenger for somebody else's child that's the beauty of this program and God keeps doing for me what I could not do for myself. How grateful should I be? There is no end to my gratitude of working my steps from 1 to 12 and keep practicing these principles. Uh, I love you guys. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I wish you all a happy 24 hours ahead of you, wherever you are in the world. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on the happy road of destiny that this program is. Thank you very much.